We're in the book of Philippians, as Peyton men- mentioned earlier, and today we're going to venture into chapter 2. We're going to finish chapter 1 and venture into chapter 2. So I want to provide just a brief recap of where we've been thus far. So this letter was written by a couple of individuals named Paul and Timothy. And in this book, at the beginning of it, they identify themselves as servants. But not just any servants, they are servants explicitly of Jesus. And Paul and Timothy, they talk about at the beginning of the book how they feel deep affection, deep gratitude towards the people who are the Philippian church. And the reason for this, we explored back in week one of this series what happened in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 16. It describes the beginning of the church in Philippi. And we learn there about Paul's imprisonment and and some things that happened with that, this really intense experience and how God delivered him and friends out of the prison miraculously. We, We also learned about healings that occurred at the beginning of the church in Philippi. And, and so there were these really intense moments that occurred that bonded these people together as the church in Philippi was planted or began. We also read earlier on uh, in this book how they are seeking gospel advance in everything, in all of life. So, so for us, like not just on a Sunday morning, but all of life. And, and Paul was talking about how his imprisonment, the fact that he's in a prison location, doesn't stop the gospel advancing. In fact, that's why he's there, is that, so that the gospel would advance in that context as well. And, and then there's this overt emphasis on joy. This is looking back. And we can see how this book is so laser-focused on joy, but, but also as we go forward, we're going to continue to hear this idea. And, and it's not just in really good circumstances. It's also in really hard circumstances, like someone sitting in a prison. Paul and Timothy are reminding us with this emphasis on joy that Jesus is far better. He's far better. Far better than any mountaintop experience we might encounter. Far better than the deepest valley, the darkest night that we might walk through as well. Over the past couple weeks, Robert and Peyton did a good job of kind of walking us through a section, doing this verse by verse and just kind of methodically working through those passages. But I'm going to kind of turn things upside down this week. I'm going to actually preach our verses backwards in a sense. And hopefully it'll make sense as we go through these verses, but we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, 27, and then we're going to work uh, through chapter 2, verse 11. So let me pray for us, and then we're going, to, we're going to jump into this. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this book, which calls us to a life filled with joy, but, but doesn't just call us to it, but it gives the foundation for living a life that is full of joy. And so I pray, even as we uh, engage this morning, that we would see that foundational reason for joy. That we would understand that it's found outside of ourselves. So God, would you, in these moments together this morning, would you help us be confronted with the fact that this is not just ritualistic, box checking. We are not just going through the motions of church. 
your church, your people gathered together under the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name, so that we would know you, so that our hearts would be stirred by your greatness, your power, your love for us, and we would be called into belief in Jesus. And then this belief would transform us and translate into the whole of our lives. And so, God, I pray that what happens in these next moments together would have ramifications for this upcoming Friday, would have ramifications for the rest of our life, not because what I'm doing is so remarkable, but because you are a God like no other. You are powerful. You care about what's happening right now. You want to change us to become more like Jesus so that in the whole of our lives, the gospel would advance as well. So God, would you graciously advance the gospel in our hearts in these moments together? In your name I pray. Amen. All right, let's read from Philippians 2. I'm going to read verses 6 through 11. It says here, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now many people would contend, and I would agree with them, that this is the cornerstone of the book of Philippians right here. That this is the foundation for everything before it and everything after it. This is the centerpiece of it. And so there is a ton of theological conversation around some of the meaning in these verses regarding Jesus' humanity and his divinity. And what we understand from the whole of Scripture is that Jesus was both fully God while also being fully man. As well. Now, if that's hard for you to wrap your mind around, and in some sense it should be hard for us to wrap our minds around that, it's totally okay. It's actually encouraged. When it says Jesus was in the form of God, it's speaking to his divinity, the fact that Jesus himself is God. But then there's also this clear idea conveyed here that Jesus chose not to utilize his divine capacities. One way it's spoken of here is it says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I think this is a really helpful image for us because the idea of grasping helpfully speaks to how we approach many things in life. Grasping is what greedy, power-hungry folks oftentimes do. Jesus, for all he was accomplishing on earth, understood that he must become like us. 
in order to bear our sin, he had to take on flesh. He had to walk in in shoes that we would walk in. He had to suffer in ways that we would uh, encounter, but he suffered in even greater ways. So Jesus, though he had these divine capacities at his disposal, he didn't pursue it. He wasn't grasping for it. Instead, it says, he made himself nothing. Other translations say he emptied himself. And in this, he was taking the form of a servant. If you ever wonder why Jewish people had a hard time identifying Jesus as their Messiah, the the one who was going to come and to save them, we can just remind ourselves of this. Their conception of God was this all-powerful being who ruled over everyone and everything. And the idea that God would come as a man would be a humble servant broke all of their ideas of who God actually was. What's being taught in verses 6 and 7 here is that Jesus did not, did not invoke the divine power that was at his disposal. In fact... His divine prerogative led him to become a servant because he was aware of the dire need of humanity, our need. And the step to become a servant led Jesus not only from heaven to earth, but also to death. It says Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, this idea of humbling oneself, humble service leading to death are the stories that we make movies of nowadays, right? Military heroes who give up their lives, who lay down their lives so that others can have freedom, so that others can live. There's been tons of movies made about this. Missionaries who go to other parts of the world lay down their lives so that others can hear about Jesus, can know salvation. Heroic rescues of many kinds. Tons and tons of stories have been recounted about these types of things. We make movies about sacrificial love because it stirs something in us. It moves us. It draws us in to the story. And the sacrificial love of Jesus was not just death. It says regarding him that it was even death on a cross. And this is really vital for us to understand because this is remarkable. The fact that he would die in this way because this is how the worst of the worst died. The greatest traitors died this way. The worst people in society, the dirtiest, the most despicable people died on a cross. And, and it's not just that type of person. It was also what was happening on the cross. The cross was invoked because they wanted to humiliate people. They wanted to expose them. They wanted to make a mockery of them. And so in every sense possible, Jesus became nothing. No respect. He hung on that cross, publicly stripped naked, 
so that everyone could see him. He was dead. Ultimately, that, that's, that was the end of it, right? He was dead. And death is a picture of nothingness, of a nobody. He literally gave up everything. And this is intended to be a visceral image for us. Jesus is marked alongside the worst of criminals. And the Romans did this so people would be, though, that the, the person who was dying on the cross, that they would be extinguished. And in dying, they would be forgotten. But it's not just that. It's also the people watching what's happening on the cross. The people watching, they wanted them to remember the person who's dying, who's supposed to be forgotten, so that they wouldn't do the same thing, that they would be tamped down, they would be under their control. And this is the instilling of fear is how they sought to control the masses. Now, there are many criminals who died similarly to Jesus. But it's Jesus' story that has been told throughout history, over and over. And not only that, all that we read in verses 6 and 8 about Jesus dying is of esteem. This is a good thing. And then verse 9 continues. Out of this, this looking at Jesus dying on a cross is a good thing, verse 9 continues with, therefore, which means... What we've just talked about, the fact that Jesus died on a cross, a despicable death, and we should esteem that, is connected to what follows. This making Jesus into nothing is the reason Jesus was then highly exalted. So we've got to see the connection here. The reason he possesses the name that is above every other name is because the fact that he was a servant. Jesus emptying of himself is why every knee will bow before Jesus and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, which means that he has preeminent authority over every knee and every tongue that has ever inhabited this world and will inhabit this world. He is far above everyone and everything. So we look at this, and what we understand then is that the way up for Jesus was actually down. The way up was down. He was highly exalted because he made himself nothing. His name was above all other names because he became a servant. He was esteemed because he humbled himself. He wasn't grasping for power wasn't grasping for control. He was using what he possessed to sacrificially love those who did not deserve that love. And this is the picture of Jesus that is vital for us to understand the whole of Philippians. That is vital for us to understand the gospel itself. That is vital for us to understand Jesus as he's revealed himself to us. Fully God fully man. We've got to understand his humility that's being shown in this picture. We've got to understand his service to others, his willingness to die, 
when he was the one who should not be dying. Everyone else should die, but he is the one who's willing to die. And this is what, this picture of Jesus is what has captured Paul and Timothy. Why they then will say it is that death is gain. This is why they can also say, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. This is why Paul is able to sit in the prison, unaware of where his life may lead, and continually speak about joy. This is not fabricated joy. There's something deep down within Paul that has been radically changed. He sees Jesus as Jesus has revealed himself, as the one who sacrificially lays his life down for undeserving people. He sees how Jesus compels joy. Okay, so we've got to see this picture of Jesus that's being given to us here in verses 6 through 11. Let's take a step back now and go to verses 1 through 5 of Philippians 2. Let me read these verses. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we get this humble picture of Jesus. We also get this exalted picture of Jesus. And Paul and Timothy state here, if you are encouraged in any way by this picture of Jesus, if you are comforted at all by Jesus' love, if you are affected in any way, immerse yourself in Jesus. Become like him. Have his love in you and flowing out of you. Be increasingly like Jesus. And I think we can hear that and we can rah-rah. We can be like, we can want to be like Jesus in those ways. It's a provocative, compelling picture that we get of Jesus. He's laying his life down for us. And so the idea of loving others like Jesus has loved us should be a compelling idea. But then this gets real for us in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Some of you know that I coach youth basketball. When you coach youth basketball, there's a lot of mistakes made. One of the mistakes that can oftentimes be made is is kids will take shots that they should not take. It's just a bad shot. And so as a coach, you're thinking in your mind, as they're, you can see them winding up to take this shot, and you're thinking in your mind, no, 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 don't, don't do that. And then the shot somehow, some way goes in, and you're like, yes. Uh, you never expected that, right? I think what's going on here in these verses is kind of the opposite. We get this picture of Jesus that we're reading about in verses 6 through 11. We're like, yes, I want to be like Jesus. But then we hear what it means, and we're like, no. Our culture says it's all about you. Have what you want, when you want it. You do you. 
Our culture's message is antithetical to what Paul and Timothy are writing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. One thing I want to highlight here. These first two words, do nothing. So rivalry has to do with outdoing someone else, being superior to someone else. Conceit deals with kind of this brazen self-focus. So we don't consider others more significant because we think we're better than them or we're more pious in some way, but because of humility. We're supposed to consider others better than us because we're humble, not, not because of pride, thinking, oh, I'm better than that person, so I'm going to think of myself as not better than them. We oftentimes do that out of pride rather than humility. And so, so what we're getting here is a warning against the pursuit of selfish gain. Okay, but no, we've got to note the complete way that this is being written to us. Do nothing. Nada. Not one thing at all. The reality is we are masters at justifying ourselves. We're masters at justifying our actions. We think, I've earned it, I've worked hard, I've put up with this person, I deserve this thing. Think about this for just a second. How many times do our, during our work day do we maybe act in a selfish way? Maybe we set aside the work that we should be doing to play a game or to read an article. Or or how often do parents demand control of the remote from the kids? Or when the kids ask us to maybe play with them and we say, no, we're not going to do that. And and why do we say no? Oftentimes, it's because we don't want to, right? It's simply that that's the reason why we don't want to. Or, Or we can eat, not because we're hungry, but we eat because we're bored, We run to social media because we need some downtime. Not because we've we've planned it out and we said, this is the best use of my time, but we just think that that will allow us to relax in some way. Now, I'm not saying all these things in an effort to kind of create a new list of commands, a new list of thou shalt not do these things. But... We, are, we, along with the Philippians, as, as we're reading this, we're being called to examine what's driving our actions. N- not just on Sunday mornings, but every hour of every day. Like, what, what's compelling us to do what we're doing? If it's selfish indulgence, if it's selfish gain, a Christian will want to stop and say, this is leading to a bad destination. This is leading me down a road that is not for my flourishing and not for the flourishing of those around me, and it really has nothing connected to gospel advancement. Now, in one sense, as we read this, this do nothing, we should feel like this is impossible. You should feel that, that it's impossible. Because it is. It's impossible for you to walk one day and not be driven by selfish gain. Even if you wake up in the morning and you say, my whole day is about not doing anything for selfish gain. You exert all your energy in that 
direction, in trying to be selfless, you will at some point think of how well you are doing in that process, which is the first step in conceit. The whole push of this section here is servanthood. It's servanthood. Jesus was the epitome of a servant. The epitome of it. He calls his followers to be servants. That's it. Servants. He's not, he's not calling us to be dynamic leaders. He's not calling us to be the best at you fill in the, fill in the blank. He calls followers of himself to be servants. So this is a drive downward. Now this drive downward is not to oppress us, nor is it to depress us either. But because he's interested in our exaltation. He's driving us down so that we would be able to experience exaltation. This is talking about resurrection. We are born spiritually dead. Jesus came so that we would be raised to spiritual life. We would be resurrected in a spiritual sense to find true life in Jesus. And how does this then occur? Verse 5 tells us this right here. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. To be a servant, to think like a servant, to follow Jesus, to consider others more significant than yourself, to be humble, to discard conceit. The only way this can occur is for your eyes to come off of yourself and be put on Jesus. You and I must come to the end of ourselves. We must stop what some people call navel-gazing, this tendency to just kind of turn in on ourselves and only be focused on us. So I, I try and tell us often here at Center Church, and the reason I do this is because the Bible says it in many ways, but I try to tell us often, it's not about you. What happens here is not about you. It's for you. But it's not about you. So the next step then is get over yourself. And I understand like this, this isn't a consumeristic thing at all, right? But that's a call for us. Get over yourself. For me as well. I need to get over myself as well. It's not what we oftentimes like to hear. But this is what the gospel calls us to. This is what Philippians 2 is driving us towards. It's not about us. It's all. All of it is about Jesus. Okay, then there's this final exhortation that provides some expectations for the Christian life. Let me read this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of, we, of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. 
A manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is not marked by laziness. It's not marked by moral laxity. It's for sure not marked by selfish indulgence. A life that's worthy of the gospel is marked by two things that we've seen already. Humility and servanthood. But then in these verses here, at the end of chapter 1, we see two more things called out. So I just want to quickly focus on these two things. The first thing is unity. Paul calls the church to be unified. He says, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is why we value gathering corporately here at Center Church. You coming here on a Sunday morning and engaging in meaningful ways is one way in which you fight selfish indulgence. You introverts might not like chatting for 10 minutes during the middle of our service. It's not about you, right? It's not about you. Some of us probably, well, I will say, all of us, I don't think there's anyone here who likes wearing masks. But it's a way in which we can practice getting over our preferences as well. Right? We, we need to gather. We need to gather. We need to come together as Jesus' church. And this requires us denying ourselves. It requires us serving others. It calls us to fight for unity, to strive side by side for faith in the gospel. This is not just something, ah, if we feel like it, we'll do it. No, the call in the gospel is that we work hard for unity. And so we want to gather here corporately in this way. But, but I want to quickly call us, emphasize here also our community groups. Because we've got corporate gathering here, right? But we also value gathering in small groups as well. This is a time, those are times for us to be able to take what's being talked about here and to flesh it out and work it out some. It's also a chance for us to build relationship with one another, to care for each other, to develop deeper relationship with one another. And so whether it's big gatherings, small gatherings, these are ways in which vital parts of how we must seek unity and strive side by side in the faith of the gospel. So unity, first of all, the second mark here of a life worthy of the gospel is suffering. It says you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for Jesus' sake. So there's a direct connection here between believing in Jesus and suffering. We are called to believe in Jesus, and this is the call for all Christians. This is how we're saved, right? Is through belief in Jesus. But Paul and Timothy are saying, when you believe in Jesus, when you have his mind amongst yourselves, when you find encouragement and comfort through Jesus' love, it will lead you into what Jesus experienced. And one of those aspects is suffering. I really love this about the Bible. I mean, no one really wants to hear that, right? But I love the fact that the Bible doesn't give us a bait and switch. It's never like, oh, come and follow Jesus and everything will be great. I mean, there's a lot of people that teach that, but it's a bunch of bunk. It's not in the Bible. The Bible's straightforward. It says, 
you will suffer. And I love that about it. And, and why does the Bible say that? Well, first of all, it's true. I mean, we live in a broken world. There's sin everywhere. So we are going to suffer in really horrific ways. But also, the Bible tells us this so that we would not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, this is talking primarily about spiritual opposition, right? But, but we can extend this out to opposition in many different spheres of life. We feel opposition in many different ways. God's design is that we could live lives that are free of fear. That's not easy, is it? We all got stuff. We all got stuff we're terrified of. Again, I think we could say this is impossible. It's impossible to be free of fear aside from or outside of the mind of Christ. But our suffering, our suffering is not meaningless. Our suffering also unites us to Jesus in deeper ways. It moves us to reflect on his suffering for us. It compels us to look to him with more dependence. We see our need. When we suffer, we see our need. We feel our weakness in greater ways. It reminds us that we are in a war. Most of us probably didn't think about that this morning, right? Getting the clothes on. I mean, maybe your kids were trying to call war this morning in your house, get clothes on and get out the door. That could have happened. But most of us probably didn't think about us being in a spiritual war this morning, right? But, but that's what the Bible teaches us. Though we live in a culture that entices us with comfort galore, Jesus wants us to know right now, right here, we are smack dab in the middle of war. There's missiles flying. Spiritual missiles flying. But he also wants us to know that this is a war he will win. This is what, as we went through the book of Revelation, this is what we heard over and over and over. Jesus is a conqueror. He wins a battle. So we want to live in such a way that that's true. All right, three points, or I'm sorry, two brief points here of gospel application as I wrap us up. So, I don't know why that's in there. Sorry about that. First of all, behold, Jesus the servant. So, we love to get stuck on Jesus. Jesus, the highly exalted one, right? And he is that. And we should focus on that. We want to follow the victor. We want to trust in the conqueror. But we've got to understand how he got there. Jesus set aside all of that to draw near to us. The one who created all of this that we have in this world became one who had no place to lay his head. The one who possessed everything made himself nothing. He was spat upon. He was hated. He was hunted. He was disowned. He was despised. He was destroyed. What would drive an all-powerful being to do this? To become our servant. One who knows that my hope for salvation, that your hope for salvation is found outside of ourselves. We can't just turn inward and say, if I follow this method, this process, these rules, I can save myself. 
He knows we can't. We don't need to pull our act together. We need a Savior, a servant Savior. Jesus, the one who became bankrupt, the one who became weak, the one who was murdered, so that we could live lives not of fear, but of faith. So as we leave here today, as you walk through your week, the call is to behold Jesus, the servant. Remind yourself often, he is the one who gets on his knees, who washes us, who washes the trash off our feet and the trash off our hearts, who gives us his righteousness so that we might be saved. Secondly, Find comfort and encouragement in Jesus' love. We, as a people, who want to be seen as sufficient, who want to be seen as being able to provide comfort and encouragement through our own means, we so quickly want to find what it is we need to do. What do we need to do? So we run to do nothing. The do nothing out of selfish ambition. And that's what we'll focus on. I'm saying don't focus on that. The key to doing nothing out of selfish ambition is first seeking Jesus for who he is. Seeing him for who he is. The servant king. Jesus is the servant king. And then when we see him as the servant king, by faith letting Jesus work inside of us to provide us the comfort and the encouragement that only he can provide to stir our affections in greater ways towards him. As much as the cross discomforts us with a Savior who is bleeding to death, who is struggling to heave out his last breath, it much more comforts us through what Jesus accomplishes for us. So don't try to find comfort and encouragement outside of Jesus. You and I know that this world is going to throw a thousand things at us this week, promising comfort and encouragement. Every single one of them will disappoint us. Maybe not in the moment. Maybe not in the next five times you interact with that thing. But eventually it will disappoint you. The well will dry up. So we've got to see Jesus for who he is, servant king. And we've got to put our faith in him and let him work these things in us. But believing the gospel does change us. It will changes. It will rewire us. It will give us new motivations. So I I just want to leave us this morning with a few questions as we close. First of all, as you consider all of this, is your manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ? If we were chilling with Paul, this dude who's writing this letter from prison, he walked in on us suffering for the sake of the gospel how would we answer this question to him or if Jesus walked in here what would he say this is not a guilt trip maybe a diagnostic I want for you what's best for you 
And I don't have a law to say this is what you need to do. God is so great and so kind to work in us in ways that are specific to each of our hearts. I'm not naive. I know my heart. I know every single person who walks in here can answer this question. No. And if we're honest, we should answer it no. Because we all have our stuff. Right? Well, let's not just throw our hands up and be like, well, everyone else. Because this isn't about comparing ourselves against other people. Notice the intent of the question. Is your manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Not looking at the person to your left or your right or your coworker, or whomever it might be. Don't compare yourself to that person because they're just as flawed as you. Is your manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Do you take seriously the call to be united to Jesus' church? The intent here is that church is not something that we just go to. Because the Bible never talks about church being something we go to. Jesus' church is us, a living, breathing organism. It's people. Are we taking seriously the call to be united to one another? Are we, are we fighting for unity? Or is unity something that it's a nice to have, but if it doesn't happen, it's not a big deal? That doesn't give a picture of the gospel to one another or to those outside of our community that is helpful. Are we investing time in seeking to build unity within our local church context? Lastly, are you frightened by anything? And really, that, that's a bad question, right? The better question is, what are you frightened by? Where is it hard to trust Jesus? And all I, would, all I would do, whatever that is for you, I want to drive you to the cross. I want to drive you to be reminded of Jesus' love for you. To find comfort and encouragement in Jesus. To let the peace that passes all understanding pervade your heart. Love, Jesus' perfect love, drives out fear. That's what it does. So let's take him at his word. Let's look at who he is. Let's trust him. Let's let him supernaturally drive fear out of our hearts.